you put statistics on this, Phil? Levitated by the human touch. Antonio's galloping forward. Here's the pass. Antonio's through. Chance of four. What a goal! What a brilliant strike by Mikel Antonio. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Knees Up Mother Brown West Ham podcast. Joining me on the pod this week, well, well it is. It is both of them, just uh, just not all together. We have a part one with uh, just young Jack and I, and then a transfer room apart with just young Cal and I, and a lot of me all over every part of the podcast. And I, um, I will take it personally if you think that's a bad thing. This week, uh, well, it's a little bit different, but we will cover a Desmond with City, some transfer rumours and some Mark Noble memories. If you would like to get in touch, all correspondence can be sent to us on Twitter at KUMB pod. Um, well, as it's just you and I, uh, romantic as it is, City at home, 2-2, um, a hell of a game and a game where well, we gave a hell of a performance for most of it anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the best games I've seen this season. I think it would have been really uh, an exciting match to watch as a neutral. Um, and uh, an interesting game, really, because two very different uh, tactical setups. Um, and I think they nullified each other quite well, really. Um, I think the draws are probably a fair result. Um, I think City pushed really hard in the second half and, and had some really good play actually in the first half as well towards the end of the half that uh, I think they were probably a little bit unfortunate to not score. Um, but our counter-attacking was excellent throughout, really. Our defensive structure was brilliant. Um, they found ways to, 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 to affect that more as the game went on. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, just really nice to see that low block back. Um, nice to see that counter-attacking style work really well. I, I do think we've spoken a lot about Lanzini's utility as part of that system. I do think if you did have a, a more dynamic 10 in there, then you could potentially create a little bit more on breakaways um, or create more regularly uh, than we were able to. Um, but a, a really strong performance from the team and uh, and some really outstanding individual performances within that as well. I suppose you would have to say for those who have kind of said, well, they got lucky, their goal, this one, the deflection, this one, the own goal. They earned their luck, didn't they? Because they, they didn't get the luck that they needed in the first half, which you probably could have understood. And you kind of have to look at the go, it's part of the low block and that kind of deep defensive game. When you're doing that for 90 minutes, you're you're opening the chances up to have a bit of bad luck as well. Aren't you? It's not not just about utilising the low block. It's just when a team strangles you that that much and for so long, uh, for such extended periods and, and can sustain pressure for such long periods, then um, it's going to happen. And whether it's a deflection, an own goal or, or, or whatever, or a long range, you know, goal, I mean, you know, look look at City over the years under Pep it's always been like this when teams have set up in, in that defensive uh, low block shape and, and have done a really good job they still nine times out of ten or even 9.9 times out of ten find a way through and um, you know even going back to that that company strike when they needed to win against a, a counter-attacking Leicester side I think it was Leicester right yeah. um, it just happens whether it's that kind of goal or a, a, a Grealish shot that, that bounces up off Dawson or a Sufal heading in from a free kick. It's partly, I think it's it's the uh, mental fatigue of, mm. of being camped in your own box for so long, and every decision being pivotal as to whether a team scores or not. If you're making mistakes higher up the pitch, then potentially you can recover. But the decisions are so uh, high pressure when you're defending in your own box um, that the, the mental fatigue will eventually get you. And that's one of those where you see the Sufal head, and you can understand. Maybe that's an, an error he doesn't make in another game because he's not put under so much pressure so constantly. He's almost yeah. to that point where you go, well, I'm assuming a City player is there because they're so good. They must be doing the thing I expect with a ball like that. Yeah. And it kind of, it just, it drains into these, these things, doesn't it? Um, how did you think we did then in our, in our setup? Obviously, we ended up conceding two goals and kind of throwing away a two-goal lead, I guess, to some extent. But how do you think we did as a defensive unit? Uh, really, really well. I, I think the way we um, marshaled the spaces against them, I think we covered the half spaces brilliantly. I think there was a, it's, it seems strange to say this because we defended so deep, but it was bold to allow so much room in the wide areas um, and to and to stick Bowen and Fornells quite tight um, in, and then to allow Sufal and Cresswell to go quite wide. Um, so it opened spaces either side um, of Dawson and Zuma, um, but we covered those really, really well with Bowen and Fornell screening those passes through those um, through the lines, um, and then kind of 
encourage City to, to play in that sort of U-shape uh, where they're, they're funneling the ball down the left and then they don't really have a threat, an aerial threat inside the box to cross to. And then they're having to come back and, and circulate the ball round and go to the other side. I also think we did a very, very good job of cutting the pitch in half against them. So once they got onto the left side of the pitch, they found it very, very difficult to break from the left side and get back to the right side where there might be some space. Um, and primarily... Huge, huge credit to Mikel Antonio for that. He did an outstanding job of stopping Rodri from circulating the ball from side to side. Um, not often through tackles, but often just through positioning himself mm. perfectly to stop the passes that allows him to quickly, quickly circulate the ball round to the other side of the pitch. So that's that's the thing that may not have gone uh, completely noticed by everyone. So you're saying Antonio was kind of dropping deep to. Not so much man mark, Rodri, because your point you're making is actually he was doing the space to stop the pass. Yes, it's the first pass that would come back. Uh, it's both Lanzini and Antonio in the first half. I haven't rewatched the second half yet, but from memory, we, we changed to more of a, a 4-5-1 block rather than a 4-4-2 block. Um, in, in the first half, it's, it's very much Lanzini and Antonio, but more so Antonio um, throughout the first half, where you're, you're effectively, what you're doing is, is, is you press in a shape which in, encourages them to play forwards um so you 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 press to to cut the pitch in half and then you say to the center back who has the ball you have to go forwards because you can't go uh, across the defense to the other side and then as soon as it gets into midfield you just squash that shape deeper and deeper until you're around your own box and you effectively say to them you're going to have to cross at some point that's what you're trying to do um what you're trying to stop them from doing is getting the ball into a Rodri or, or someone and being able to switch the ball to the underloaded side of the pitch or allowing them to have someone like a Silver or a De Bruyne in space deeper. Um, often with City, it's actually a Cancelo or a Zinchenko because of how um, attacking they are, um, who would then step into the half space and play a ball into a Jesus or play a ball into a Mares inside the box. We denied that absolutely brilliantly I, I've really throughout the season there are a few teams I've seen deny that so well uh, and force City to do things that they're uncomfortable doing what you see then with City and, and why Pep is exceptional and why that team is exceptional is um, the change in the second half where they effectively went okay if you're going to give us the space out wide we're going to commit really heavily into the half spaces to stop your fullbacks from being able to get there quite so quickly and what what are you going to do when you've got Grealish on the run or Mares on the run now it's suddenly very very difficult because you're not quite as tight and he was very complimentary wasn't he Pepe I mean he said he, he explained to him, um, the, the press he said that he used that West Ham were just so good in the first half that he wanted to push wide and drag wide and use those wide spaces. And yeah. his other his other real compliment seemed to be to Antonio, who had a a fascinating game, um, a fascinating game where he was playing against a defence, he was playing against a midfield, he was playing against a referee, it felt like at times. And I mean, yeah. he was as frankless a task as you get with Antonio, I felt that what one was, because he really, he was getting no support from the referee. He was often doing a lot alone up top as well and probably won't get the credit he deserves for what is a wonderful assist too yeah um again like i said i haven't watched the second half back yet but from memory combining the rewatch of the first half with with the, my memory of the second half this was a exceptional Mikel antonio performance particularly the first half possibly his best individual 45 minutes of the season the battle with fernandinho was just brilliant um fernandinho did a really great job he's he is so so good um and i'm not sure i know in, in, in you know in my time of watching premier league football uh, there's been another player quite so good at walking the line perfectly oh God, there's never been anyone like him he's in, he's, 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 he's going to retire as the best person to just not get booked for things he should have been booked for yeah, yeah but, and also fouls he's the best person at committing fouls that he doesn't get um called up on he's absolutely brilliant at it um it's a combination of timing and technique and he's amazing when he does make a tackle he's so quick to get his leg out of the way that it looks like there's often looks like there's either been no contact or what he's effectively done is he's blocked the space to make someone think there's going to be contact mm. so they slow down enough that they can't then get the ball as they poked it around him uh, which for me is a foul because he's making he's often making no attempt to play the ball um, but he's brilliant at it and he, he plays refs amazingly and I think he did a very good job on Anthony Taylor um, and equally did quite a good job on Antonio but what's brilliant about Antonio is it could have been it would have been very easy for him to get very frustrated and to start 
to make rash decisions um, when he was receiving the ball. And it, it's challenging as a striker to to have to focus that hard to screen the spaces so well defensively and then to have to be the primary outlet to drag your team from receiving the ball on the halfway line or five, 10 yards inside your own half to the edge of the opposition box. That's a massive job. And for him to, you know, I think it must have been five or six times in the first half to receive the ball and just drag the entire team up the pitch. And obviously with Antonio, I understand people's frustrations Sometimes he gets into these brilliant, he gets himself into these brilliant positions where he has beaten Fernandinho and then he can't connect across or he finds himself in behind when the Fernandinho pass happens yeah. and, and he can't finish. And, and that is the frustration with Antonio. But I saw a brilliant tweet, um, uh, this week, which was, uh, you know, one of the most common misconceptions in, in football is that creating chances isn't a skill. Um, we're obsessed with finishing chances. Yeah. The, uh, the sheer volume of chances that Mikel Antonio creates by being himself for yeah. West Ham is absurd. It's an absurd volume of chances. And he deserves massive credit for that, even if he doesn't finish um, as many of those chances or uh, connect passes in as many of those chances as we might like him to. I think that, and that's that real key point about this whole for all right, this whole ordeal that has been finding a replacement or finding a backup or finding something to compliment Antonio is that people look at goals and they look at Bowen's or Bowen's finishing this, Bowen's doing that. But the chance creation is so huge from Antonio and the, the kind of weight of, he's a real one-man front line, isn't he? He does, he does the whole pitch. He does all the dirty work. He's still yeah. chasing down that loose pass. Um, there was one really good one that for an your thing and it was clear as day where he did that put the foot in so that your person has to hurdle it to keep going and he did just put his leg away afterwards and he clearly it's impeded the man but there's no contact and it's got such an obsession yeah there's a real so that was on Lanzini that was on Lanzini. Lanzini in the first half where Lanzini managed to nick the ball poked it round Fernandinho and Fernandinho did this wonderful just going to swipe my leg out into the <laughs> space and bring it straight back so that you can't run into the space and also I've not fouled you yeah and it's it's infuriating but it's very very very, very clever. Uh, the other, the other thing that I suppose comes to mind is something I noticed a little bit and noticed more from the review is the um, every time Fabianski had, had the ball and uh, those you can't see me because I'm doing things with my hand, two <laughs> centre backs would would go very, very deep into the penalty area, but also split to either side. What they it was almost even if it didn't look like it was working, they stuck rigidly to it, which means it was obviously a plan. So, what was the point of the plan? The point of that plan is is. Uh, as we know, as anyone who's watched City this season, they like to press really very aggressively. Um, and that's because they want to control the game. They want the ball. They want to dominate through possession and they want to force you into your own box in the way that they could for long stretches of the game. And often teams don't stand up to that as well as we did. Um, largely when City get into those positions, you're looking at fives and sixes because teams just cannot survive that mental fatigue from being in those positions for as long as we were able to. Um so they, they they want to press you aggressively, particularly with the front three. They're not Liverpool. They're not going to charge up with a, you know with the entire midfield supplementing that as well. But the front three will go and try and stop you from being able to play out comfortably. Um, and effectively, what we did is we stretched the pitch really well. Um, so we created a situation where there's a three on three. Uh, if you're counting Fabianski, Fabianski, Dawson, uh, and Zuma against Jesus, Mares, and Grealish, um, uh, a pretty clear. Um, kind of Rice being marshaled by De Bruyne um, and then a pretty clear mismatch, mismatch between uh, Bernardo Silva and uh, Suchek um, with Suchek pulling out to the right side um, to receive long balls. We're also happy to go over the top of the defence, but we create effectively a 4v4 on the last line uh, where you've got Cancelo, uh, Fernandinho, Laporte, Sinchenko um, across City's back line. And for us, you've got uh, Fornals, Antonio, Lanzini and Bowen. Um, and basically it, 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 it stretches the pitch massively and it leaves this huge hole in, in midfield. Um, and what we wanted to do is draw them out onto us, trying to try and get Silver and Rodri to step a couple of yards up and then play the ball over the top of that into that 4v4 on the last line. Um, and usually that would be a challenging thing to create much off of because most defences would be able to 
I mean, definitely at City's level would be able to cope with those kinds of balls. But you see with a weakened City defence, how Zinchenko didn't quite have the um, awareness or um, concentration uh, to uh, follow Bowen's runs or to stop Bowen from being able to hit that space in between him and Laporte. And you also see how, because they didn't have Diaz, they didn't win every aerial. Mm. Um, and that just off the few times we were able to win first contact, even actually, you know, the first goal, we don't win first contact. It's for now sensibly dropping in and then playing the ball over the top. Um, but it, you, you effectively create a small sided 4v4 where they're so high that there's a huge amount of space in behind. And if anyone switches off for a split second, Bowen has the um, intelligence to hit that space um, and to stay on side. Um, and he did it twice uh, and it worked uh, really, really well. I, I can understand though. I mean, for me, when I was watching it, it was driving me absolutely mad first time around in the stadium because you're thinking, please, can we not play short to Craig Dawson under intense pressure with, I mean, we've literally got no one else back to receive a pass <laughs> off of him um so yeah uh, the other thing that's probably worth mentioning is we committed the fullbacks really high yeah i was gonna ask you about how the fullbacks bombed forward which must have i think i think you said in the review because obviously they pushed with the three they then obviously didn't have the people to follow as we'd gone forward yeah so even if you don't manage to go straight in behind off that first contact so first header or whether it's city or or, or us who, who win that first contact if you can't manage to hit bowen in behind off that first ball, um, whoever receives it. Um, you know, we had two examples for now's once Antonio the second time. Um, if you can't do that, then what you can do is because Grealish and, uh, and Morris are pushed so high mm-hmm. um, and we haven't dropped Cresswell and Sufal and Cresswell and Sufal will be sitting on the halfway line or something like that when the ball goes long. Uh, when you do then get the ball wide, either to Fornals or Bowen, um, you then have a 2v1 against the fullback um, and you can really effectively use the fullback's overlapping runs on either flank to allow either Fornals or Bowen to then cut back and have the space um, to cross. And, and remember, like I said, right at the start, Suchek is committed forward as part of this. So you can have Suchek and Antonio in the box with Bowen or Fornals in space to, to cross because of this kind of overload in the wide areas. So it's a, it's a, it's a really clever tactic, actually. One of, the, one of the ones that I've seen recently that I've been really impressed with because um, it worked so, so well and caused them so many problems. Um, and yeah, I, th- I, I do think... it. it Obviously, it's been come up with in the, in, in the space over the course of this week because I'm not sure it's something that you would do if City were full strength mm. defensively. It really does expose Zinchenko's weaknesses. I was going to ask, if, if, that, if that's a defence with Diaz in and you're expecting less aerials to be won, is there a, I mean, obviously, the first risk is you know Dawson or Zuma losing the ball, blah, 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 blah. But, but I presume there's a massive risk there of just a header centrally yeah, exactly. Very, very exposed to a counter. Yeah, you're 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 really trusting that you're going to be able to counter press effectively when the ball does drop in midfield. If City do receive that first contact off the first contact, the first second ball. It's not first second ball. If City <laughs> receive the second ball uh, in a central area. You're really trusting that. Rice, Suchek, Fornals, Lanzini, Antonio Bowen, those players who are in those areas are going to be able to swarm that quickly enough to not allow a pass that then hits the front three against the exposed defence quickly. Um, And we did that really well. Uh, And frankly, because Diaz wasn't in there. And also, I think Walker's a big miss with this kind of thing. Walker's a huge miss with this kind of thing. Um, it, It didn't really happen that many times there weren't really that many situations where City did win that second ball and were able to attack us when we were exposed um, so just really great coaching I suppose the other things the other things I could ask is um, now De Bruyne uh, relatively quiet I suppose <laughs> much more quiet than his uh, left footed hat trick obviously in yes. the week at Wolves is that in mostly because of the structure we've employed rather than anything specific individually because I'd have thought, if there's one thing I noticed Wolves did that I, they don't usually do, is they just gave him lots of space to run and pass into. Yeah, well, De Bruyne didn't have much space at all. And that's what I was saying earlier about blocking up the passes into mm. the half spaces and then being quite keen to block space in and in around those areas when we got deep as well. Um, we very clearly set up to say the players that are going to have to win this game for you are going to be your wide players it's going to need to come from Grealish or Mares, um, and they're going to have to create a chance in in that space out wide that we're willing to concede um, or if you or you're going to have to kind of revert from having your fullbacks coming into the half spaces because we're so keen to block those areas that your, your fullbacks are going to have to go and overlap um, which is something they don't often do with City or don't usually do with City and then make the most of a 2v1 out wide to then cross from there um, it's, it's sensible really because like I said they don't 
really have aerial threats inside the box. The only time in the first half that they did have much success off of a cross is when Rodri goes forward from six and, and finds himself in the striker position because he can win a header. The other thing was, um, it was Suchek, and it's it's more of a general point, but he, he, it's another game where his aerial presence was kind of felt, whether it was those long kicks or bits in the bobs in the area that he does. Um, how would this team adapt without him? A lot of people talking, I know we've done this kind of Phillips stuff before, I don't want to go long into it, but how is this team ready to adapt in the way people want with a, a more ball-playing player? Because I don't see how we cut that load for everyone else basically Suchek seems to win about seven or eight aerials a game yeah I think it would be a, a difficult adaptation I think that the, the thing really is with West Ham now is, is is you've got a huge amount of churn over the next uh, transfer window mm. um, and there needs to be a, a sort of st- a stylistic prioritization um, going into this window because really what we need to do has to probably happen over two summer windows rather than one yeah. um, so you could either look to recruit a more ball playing um, central midfielder I think ultimately that's where we need to go we're going to need to have the three um, Rice, Suchek and one other um, to be able to utilise um, different systems for different yeah. games and uh, to have sort of better personnel for certain games at the moment we can only really get away with Lanzini at eight against the bottom two, three teams in the league. And um, we're going to need to be able to get away with having a, a passing presence at eight against probably more more looking like the bottom eight, nine teams rather than bottom two, three. And that's the thing in terms of sort of turning draws into wins against those teams that have happened a few times this season or making sure you beat a Southampton or making sure you beat a Leeds. Um, and then... Aside from that, actually, the other thing we probably need to do is build on and develop that low block counterattacking system by adding um, a set of rotation options that are desperately needed for that. And then probably adding one or two players to the to the first 11. We're looking maybe at a 10 and maybe at a centre-back where you can really develop that system to be at its sharpest and most effective. Really, you're going to want to continue to use Suchek in games against the top six, um, top eight, because that counter-attacking low block system is so effective against those teams um, that there's no need to abandon it. It's just that we need to kind of develop that plan B um, over the course of the next two windows. And I think we can certainly cope without someone like Suchek against teams in that area, in the bottom half of the division, um, because we're going to have to start to look to effectively strangle games against those teams in a way that a city can against us. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's going to take time. It's not something that's going to happen over one window. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of people kind of seeing us get a couple of seasons of Europe and some good f- finishes and thinking we're in that bubble now, but actually you could quite easily drop away from that and become weak mid-table West Ham again without um, if you try and go too fast or even kind of too foolishly and just assume you're better than you are. Precisely. I guess. Obviously, there were little changes City made. We've talked about the whip and stuff, but they got back into the game, I suppose. It's really how they did that rather than just it happened. Yeah, and I think the the important difference is the role of Bernardo Silva um, in, in the second half. I mean, he did it a lot in the first half as well, but you also saw him um, as, a, as a distributor a lot in the first half. So it's him dropping in in the first half and trying to, to play passes through the lines, whereas in the second half, he saw a lot less of the ball, uh, but he occupied spaces between. And I think I can't. I should probably give credit because someone someone uh, tweeted me this um, as I was doing the review. I'll try and find it and mention it just before we move on. But um, occupying the spaces between the fullback and the centre back on either side of the pitch, uh, so between Sufal and Dawson, or between Zuma and, and Cresswell. Mm. And what that does, he's so brilliant at timing it as well. He times that sort of surge, but he he. Serge is probably not the right word. He kind of ambles um, in the similar similar way to what I described when we talked about Frankfurt and Lindstrom and why that's so good for Frankfurt. He kind of just ambles into dangerous areas in, in the kind of way that no one necessarily notices or picks him up. Um, and he finds himself kind of um, equally distant from the fullback and the centre-back. And then what that forces is a couple of steps, even if it's just one step from either player, mm 
closer to each other to marshal the space that he's in that then as soon as and this is why city are so unbelievably good is they have a, such a developed understanding of triggers as soon as hits a zinchenko or a cancelo as soon as they see that step from a soufal or a cresswell the opposite fullback as soon as they see it then they're going to hit the winger because they know that the fullback's momentum is going in the wrong direction yeah so then it takes an extra second to then get out and, and, and make the pressure. And if you've got players with exceptional talent like Grealish and Mahrez, once they manage to receive the ball and they're going at full pelt by the time the fullback's meeting them, it makes dribbling past someone much easier because the speed of movement on either side is much quicker. Mm. Um, if you don't have that movement from Bernardo Silva where he was operating more as a distributor and they were moving the ball side to side and trying to pick passes through and you're hitting the winger, then the centre back, uh, sorry, the, the fullback is already in a nice position not moving at speed to be able to screen um, the, the movement that could go towards the byline to be able to create a cutback situation. And you're often forcing the ball to then come back, uh, which is exactly what we want. And so Bernardo Silva's movement in that second half into those half spaces, causing those slight commitments from the fullbacks to be slightly more retreating rather than out towards the wingers gave the space and it was particularly on the left side it gave the space for for Jack Grealish who then had uh, just an, a brilliant second half performance where he was virtually unplayable uh, it's, there has been criticism for Soufal but Christ when a player that good is playing that well it's, it is near impossible to do anything doesn't matter how good you are yeah and he's one of those as well that could quite easily get you sent off for a misstep it's not it's not one of those players who's drifting away softly around you is it he kind of he does go at dangerous places and you could quite easily two mistakes two yellow cards and you're off well exactly so if I had to play the entire second half against City's best player who was playing at his best level on a yellow card it's an impossible job for him it's the ideal for City as well I guess Right, well, that's that's City done. Um, yeah, we've got quite a raft of names. Uh, we're already on. We're not even at the the window's not even open yet, and I think my spreadsheet's at least ten deep from current rumours. So I'll get uh, I'll get Cal get busy, get him some work to do, and we'll go through that, and we'll have discussion about those players, uh, what we think, what Cal knows, and how they might fit as well. Joined now by Cal. Jack's gone, but Cal's here for the transfer talk. How are you, Cal? I'm good, mate. I'm well. Excited, looking forward to a big summer, particularly now we've got uh, European football confirmed. Yes, it is. We've got at least Conference League, if not Europa. Um, what we're going to do now is go through some of the names we've been linked to, mostly kind of this and last month, but some of the older names from January. If they haven't popped up again anyway, they will pop up again now. And I'll use my transfer expert here, the guru, to kind of discuss some of these, look at the stats, some just takes, some more kind of deep dive as we do it and compare some of the players as well. Because we've got a bit of a, a trend going through some of the names, haven't we? And, um, we'll start start from the top. We'll start in the attack. That's the one that undeniably most people are interested in. We've had one at most strikers for about a year, two years, however many years it feels like we've been doing that. And uh, we've got, it's a good summer, it feels like, for options on strikers and attacking players, doesn't it? It feels like there's quite a few up for moves regardless of contract or a year from now or a month from now kind of on the move anyway yeah 100 percent. and i think for a wide ranging spectrum of attackers as well i think about two months ago i had a short list and the short list has now become a long list mm. and it's it's not made it any easier but it's uh far cry from where we were last summer and in january as well where it seemed like there was no one about um but yeah you've got the likes of i mean the most probably adventurous one or probably unrealistic frankly uh, but I saw um, someone saying that Barcelona are ready to offload Depay um, oh, and yeah. me and Jack looked uh, and he's found out his wages are only 85 grand a week because initially we were like well we can't afford a Barcelona attacker he's going to be way out of our price range but I imagine they'll want to sell him on a cut price given they've just sold Coutinho for 17 and a half million and they got Depay on a free and they yeah. paid 120 million for Coutinho. So <laughs> I imagine they'll be demanding too much for him. So he's someone that I'm going to look into. Obviously he's not, not the, I think he's about 28. So perhaps not the youngest of some of the options that we'll discuss, but um, certainly someone that, it, well, we know that Sullivan loves a marquee signing and I yes. think he would definitely fit the bill. Yeah. That's, um, that's a proper marquee talent kind of level. It's interesting because we, what we can't do is, we kind of have to kind of guess on it. Go his attitude, and he's one of those mm. who's got a bit of a a reputation, I suppose, that follows him, and it's hard to know where those kind of fit in. Yeah, a hundred percent. He's got a, he's, he's got certainly got an ego. Um, a bit of a rapper, and, 
Yeah, I think so. I think, <laughs> I think. But my favourite NBA player has also got a rap album. So shout out Damien, Damien Lillard. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Moyes, if of of all managers, I suppose, has sort of shown that he can handle personalities. But I think that's largely because he spends so much time choosing the sort of personalities he invites into his dressing room. So yeah. whether he even passes that first sort of stage of character test we'll see but he's yeah certainly someone that i'll be probably writing an article on if it seems that it's even remotely realistic tantalizing prospects i suppose and we've got i mean we've got some names who kind of feel some more of a realistic bent on that kind of take of talent yeah. some that are more Premier League functional i mean if we look the, the kind of four attacking players and they're all strikers but kind of more attacking midfield or uh, up front and those kind of areas uh, we were going to talk about Watkins, Lingard, Hlozek and Mbolo. Now Mbolo to me feels like that kind of similar kind of maverick talent, but not not as high a ceiling, but not quite as the attitude and the kind of reputation either. Yeah, I think differently to the pies he's got he has a reputation but I think the reputation that follows Mbolo around is that he's this injury plagued attacker that no one wants to go near um, and I think from my understanding is that early in his career he suffered a couple of fairly serious injuries but since then all of his uh, the time he's missed has been for very minor niggles that haven't been reoccurring so it's not really as big a turn off as it might seem as though it should be and I think as well coming out of the season we've had where we've had one very injury prone striker and the the medical team have managed to manage him really well actually and thankfully we've not had any period where he's been out for an extended period of time so I think you, it, you can have reasonable amount of faith that the team could manage continue to manage Antonio's minutes and Dembolo's on top and in theory it would become easier because they would share each other's minutes up top yeah yeah, and you think so, if, if he was only available for seventy minutes, that's seventy uh, percent yeah. of the minutes, even or something yeah. like that. It, you kind of actually, it's not a bad, it's not ideal, and you want your best players, especially, to play as much as they can. But we could do with rotation and some swapping in there. Yeah, I think so, and I think before we, well, leading into the next players, actually, I think one of the key things that uh, myself and Jack would be considering um, going into this window, and and we'll talk about this at greater depth in a in a later episode when we're going to do some proper deep dives but I think versatility has proven to be arguably the most crucial asset under Moyes because as we know he likes to keep a fairly small squad so having players that can play across a number of positions is is essential and, and will certainly put you in good stead if Moyes is considering you as a target so I think Mbolo fits that bill he's since his um both at Schalke and then since he arrived at Mönchengladbach has played uh, as a lone number nine, but also on both right and left wing, and more recently as a fairly successful number ten, actually uh, for Munchen Gladbach. Um, but more of the mould of a Lingard ten, where it's kind of a shadow striker. Can the shape can change into a sort of four four two rather than a sort of archetypal Lanzini esque number ten, um, which I think there's probably a, a place in our squad for someone like that. I mean, since Lingard's left, obviously it's. We've, we've we've gone from strength to strength, but I think particularly in the last maybe month of the season, I think the absence of an out-and-out number 10 is something that's been really noticeable and, and something that we've talked about at length. Um, and yeah, I think Mbolo could be that guy to come in. I mean, his goal-scoring record this uh, season has actually been pretty good. I mean, he's not featured all that often, but he's got 13 goals and four assists, which I think works out at about 0.44 goals per 90, um, which is considerably more uh, well not considerably more but more than Antonio in terms of the per 90 ratio um, and then his sort of yeah ball carrying ability and dribbling ability is uh, very similar and I think he's one of very few attackers uh, in Europe that's involved in more offensive duels per 90 than Antonio which anyone any West Ham fan will know quite how many of those Antonio's get involved <laughs> in every game so so yeah I think he, he'd be someone that I'd I'd I've been a fan of for a long time and would certainly be looking at. This is really pulling back the curtain rather than just doing it naturally. But Jack asked me to kind of talk to you about the similarities, maybe not even similarities, but the role that Hlozek could play as a 10 and as a wide man, as well as a striker. So obviously he gets seen as West Ham fans and he's been linked continuously. It's different, almost a different story every day because of, I mean, those links have grown since we bought the Czech players and then got those, the Czech ownership or the Czech stakeholders. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, can you see him as someone who can do that 10 role? Uh, I, I think he could play a 10 role. I don't know if he would play 
the same 10 role that Lingard did. Uh, again, like Embolo and like Lingard, he's someone who would offer versatility in attack. I think, um, uh, understandably, but wrongly, uh, a lot of people assume that he's just a number nine. Um, I mean, I myself don't watch that much Czech football. Um, so it's understandable that that is the sort of position that he's earned his reputation on because prior to that fairly serious injury that he picked up, he was playing up front and he was scoring a lot of goals. Um, since he's come back, uh, he's kind of developed more into a, well, he's played across the attack, basically. He's played in the number 10. Um, as a sort of left-sided inside forward, so right-footed but cutting in off the left mm. like Lingard did quite frequently for us, uh, but also as a number nine too. So if you think of the gaps that we've got in our squad and areas that we've suggested we need to target, that's a number 10, a new explosive left winger and a backup striker for Antonio. Mm. That's one player that can cover all three of those positions. Mm. So in that sense, he's really useful. Uh, also, Needless to say, he's got a ridiculously high ceiling. Um, the, the rate he's been scoring at, uh, both pre his injury and since his injury, are great. Um, but I think as well, the one uh, negative that sort of got lauded over him a lot um, was that he looked a bit lightweight before his injury. So when he was prolific, he was scoring obviously in a fairly low standard league, but a lot of people questioned whether he'd be able to make the step over to England because it's a lot more physical and that sort of thing. Um, and I think since he's obviously spent more time playing in senior football, he's actually also shot up to six foot two now and has really filled out as well. And he's sort of developed this ability to hold off defenders that are like 10, 12 years older than him, like these big six foot four, like hardcore defenders in playing out in the Czech league. So, and, and in Europe as well. So I think that is less of a question mark now. I think he obviously wouldn't come in to start for me, but I think if you have the opportunity to sign someone that young, that high potential and given the links that we have that essentially would just usher through the move like without any risk at all um assuming like i don't know a dortmund or a munich don't come in and say hey kritinski is 40 million for this guy which we just wouldn't do but as far as i'm aware i think the reports have suggested that we could get him even on a loan with an option to buy at the end of the loan or something so if we can pull those strings and, and use the kritinski links to our advantage then i just think it would make such sense. I mean, numbers wise, he's um, in response to Jack's question about whether he could play the Lingard role. I think uh, his shooting numbers match up pretty well. So this is looking at Flozek's uh, numbers this season uh, post return from the injury, but compared to Lingard's numbers when he was with us, uh, obviously in that purple patch six month window, because he's got no numbers this season to compare to because he's just not played. Um, so yeah, shooting wise, they match up pretty well. Um, he's, I think, to my knowledge, Flozek posts better dribble success rate and records just slightly less progressive runs per 90. But in terms of a ball character, in fact, no, he doesn't. He has one more. Um, so yeah, in terms of a ball carrier, and someone who can draw contact, he gets fouled a similar amount. Mm. Um, he also receives the ball a similar amount. So he's as happy to get involved uh, in play and carry the ball and spearhead attacks. So in that respect, I think, yeah, he'd probably be just as useful uh, in terms of, you know, how we used to see Lingard pick up the ball on the edge of our box and just carry it from like an opposition corner or an opposition free kick. I think he could do that role well. Uh, where I think he'd need to develop is in his playmaking. So the one thing that Lingard, uh, aside from scoring a shit ton of goals for us, the one thing he was also very good at was uh, sort of getting in that position and um, picking the right pass. So to play in Antonio or um, whoever else was around him for Nals, uh, Suchek. Um, and I think the the difference in the numbers uh, between Lingard and Klojek in those periods is quite stark. So uh, in terms of passing to the final third, I think Lingard's a about 20% more successful in, in those scenarios and is also passing at a higher frequency. Um, and that's the same with passes specifically to the penalty area, progressive passes uh, and just passing in general, although the difference is slightly less. Um, so I think Lingard is blessed in the sense that he can play the archetypal 10 role, but he can also play the sort of shadow striker wide forward role because he has all of those strengths. He can finish uh, his decision-making is great. His accuracy of his passing is great. His ball-carrying is great. Klozek doesn't have the playmaking yet, but 
you also have to bear in mind that he's only recently been asked to play a 10 role. It's very new to him. He grew up in the academy as a very prolific striker and he's sort of learning these new roles on the job, essentially. Um, but he is only 19, I believe, maybe 18, actually. Um, so the fact that he's, A, shown the willingness to adapt a new role when it would have been quite easy for him to turn around and go, actually, no, I'm a striker. I've just scored 30 goals. Like I'm going to play there. He's he's shown a willingness, a desire to get into that starting 11 in whichever position he can get the minutes at. And he's he's excelled in all of them. He's He's got 11 goals and 11 assists. So it seems wrong to say a player with yeah. 11 assists can't do the playmaking role, but usually it's cutbacks and yeah. sort of uh, play rolled balls across the six-yard box on account of his ability to carry into that position and beat his man. So I think to ask him to come in and play the role that Lingard played from the off would be a big ask. I don't think he could do that. Maybe he could do it from the left side, cutting in as a, as a left-sided attacker. Uh, and I think he'd be good enough to play as backup to Antonio, I think, uh, or maybe as a sort of third choice striker that you rotate in for the Carabao and stuff. Um, Cause I probably wouldn't want to put too much weight on his shoulders. Um, but I think there's, considering the trajectory and the development that he's shown, even in this last season, adopting that new number 10 role, I think he's probably not there yet. But if we were to invest in that development and maybe persevere with Vlasic or Fornals at the 10, with Closet coming in and getting minutes at left wing striker and number 10, then I think, yeah, it would, it would be a really smart acquisition. Hello, and welcome back to part three of the podcast, where I have both Jack and Cal with me now, because that's how things are working this week. And we're going to discuss Mark Noble and kind of a look back at Mark Noble and talk quickly about the game as well. And it was a uh, it was a really special occasion on Sunday, wasn't it? The club, and they don't get a lot of credit for many things, did it absolutely perfectly, Jack. Yeah, I think they got the tone spot on. Um, I, I have become a little bit tired of the sort of light show and play a video thing. But um, no, I think they got the tone spot on for for, for the whole um, kind of lead up as well. And, and the content that came out in the week, um, even the stuff, you know, like his picking his 11 with uh, James Collins, the fact that they had James Collins doing that with him. And then um, and just the way that they addressed definitely both sides of Noble, which I think was really important, not just Noble, the person and the captain, but Noble, the player and the contribution he's made on the pitch um, for West Ham, which I think was was really important. I was concerned that it, that the player part of that could get quite lost um, mm. this week. And I think it's been retained really well. And that was a very important part of getting it right. I think both Ben Shepherd and Trevor Brooking kind of mentioned uh, maybe things not always being rosy and not always being quite this good and Noble still being there, which I thought, was important because it does it means it almost makes it's not a marketing PR exercise it is a bit of a real thing and we are yeah. remembering the football fans that haven't forgotten and you know have lived through these periods with him and that was kind of the point of Mark Noble I suppose as well Cal is that he was a a fan as a player and a player as a fan yeah 100% it's I think He's been there in the most turbulent of times, uh, the most turbulent season, definitely, when all that chaos was ensuing. And he was kind of one constant throughout that. And and it's nice that uh, it's come to his final season and he's he's been able to bow out on a real positive. And I think everything's just kind of fallen together. I think the occasion of the day, like Jack said, was was perfectly executed. Um, I think as well, I had to giggle. I don't know if you saw it, but David Sullivan buying a Louis Vuitton bag as a leaving present, which I just thought was a, a nice, funny touch. But he seemed, there was a lot of uh, uproar about it, but he seemed to be laughing about it. So you never know. It could just be a little inside joke. But yeah, it'll be a, a real shame to see him go, but I'm glad he got the send-off he did. And I mean, we all know he's not really going far, is he? He'll probably take a holiday and he'll come back in some capacity, which I think is only right, really. I thought it was uh, his, the touches with his family were very good. I thought, I mean, his, his daughter in particular was very, very emotional. Uh, any any tears, Jack? I was I was quite close at one point. I will admit, I managed to avoid crying. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, I was more. I, I think that's partly what was nice about it. It was, it was really celebrating his career. Mm. So I was more happy watching um, the videos that came up and listening to him speak and. Um, yeah, it was difficult when he said um, that, he, that he hoped he'd done us proud. Um, mm. But yeah, just just um, just pleased for him, really. I think, like Cal said, it, it could so easily have been difficult for him to find a moment to 
exit. Um, and I think he, as he said himself several times over the course of the week, he got it right in picking this moment because he can leave on his own terms at a time when things are happy and, and, and good and there's not this pressure on him uh, sort of holding things together in the way that he has done for for such long periods of his West Ham career. So I'm uh, more pleased for him that he's managed to to get that right and, and get this moment, which is, you know, quite rightly all about him. And I, what I think I did love is that the club almost have basically not given a shit about the kind of bitterness you're going to get from other fans on Twitter. And they've, they've gone for it properly yeah. and they've really done a send off, but it was, they did, they did manage to do that tone where it was warm kind of celebration rather than we're going to try and make you cry. No crying and waste. No spoke was there to possibly get the yeah. water, get what's going, but actually the club didn't push it too hard. They just did a kind of a warm love of the man he was. And I think it was really important that Moy said he didn't bring him on as a charity act. He said, if I was going to bring him on, I'd have done it with 30 seconds to go. I brought him on because I needed the player and he's been able to do that. He's been able to go out as still a player and as still someone used from the squad. Not, not his peak anymore. And we, I mean, if we're going to look at a peak season, 2015, 16, I'm thinking probably mm-hmm. around that Euros time when at least everybody Claret and Blue was clamouring for Mark Noble to be in the Euro squad. I mean, did you think he deserved it, Jack? Would you have put him in that squad? I think so. I think he... he, he I, I, to be honest with you, the, the England midfield that went was, was pretty awful. Um, yeah, and, awesome. uh, um, and he was having a brilliant standout individual season. And, you know, Jack Wilshire went mm. to that Euros having been injured for the entire season. Um, and Noble had had well, probably his, his best um, individual performance in the season to that point. And he offered something a little bit different, I think. Um, he offered a combination of, of uh, that the enthusiasm that you definitely need um, to play. Um, definitely, I, I can't remember what what system England played because obviously I was supporting Wales at that tournament, so I don't know whether they played a four two three one or four three three or four four two. Do you not remember that that game? Um, I do remember that game, of course I did, but I remember, <laughs> I remember Iceland a little bit uh, more than than that. Um, but no, I. I um, I think his ability to to affect uh, the game in and around the box, as he had done for us in that season, but then also to provide something defensively as well, um, would have been a real benefit to that England squad. Um, so yeah, I would say he'd serve to be in it. I, I mean, I'll, I will come back to the, uh, and it's really daft of me to go to the Welshman first to talk about Mark Noble and English shuttle, but I will come yeah. back to you, obviously, on the tactical side to talk about his role as a player very briefly. But on that season, Gary, not just an Englishman, but my numbers man as well. Um, I mean, he was, that was his peak, I suppose. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, it's the one that everyone remembers. Uh, and it was obviously helped by the sort of having a pretty good squad around him as well. I think that was the pilot season where uh, everyone remembers it so fondly. Uh, and yeah, it was frankly an injustice that the likes of Ross Barkley, Jordan Henderson, Lana, Milner all got on that plane. I mean, Eric Dyer, all of them ahead of him. It, it's just, I'll never get over it. Um, but yeah, I thought knowing that we were going to do this section and as the resident data man I thought I would go back and take a look at the data and thankfully it's actually the first year of data that's available to us on Scout, so it's, it's almost too good to be true um, but I really wanted to do this bit just because I think it's noble I think probably a lot of the clamour especially from opposition fans is is largely based around the fact that he's made so many appearances for the club and everyone goes oh Mark Noble what a great guy what a servant and he's the the player actually does sometimes get overshadowed. I don't think, I mean, I guess the snub on the England plane was probably the, the biggest testament to that. Um, but looking back through the numbers, it, it, he really was an incredible midfielder. I mean, def- like Jack said, defensively and in attack, um, he was a real contributor. I think that season he had 11 goal contributions, which is something that you don't, re- and that just in the Premier League alone, something you don't really consider or remember Mark Noble for. Um, so I went through and picked out some of his key metrics. Uh, I won't sit and go through them all, but you know, the obvious ones from midfielder, passing, forward passing, defensive dual success rate, etc. Uh, and then just to sort of bring up a comparison, um, just to sort of think about the levels that he was actually hitting in that season. I went on to Scout and I, I used the data to find players that have been performing at the same level that Mark Noble was performing at, but in this season, uh, in across Europe, uh, just to see the sort of names that come up. Um, honestly, at first, I wasn't really sure of the level of player that would come up. And you have to be quite selective with the data because if you obviously just put input every metric, then he's going to be the only person there because <laughs> there's no one that's going to replicate him. Uh, so I, 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 picked, I picked and chose the ones that I thought were the most appropriate. And of the three names that came up top, 
um, as being most similar to Mark Noble this season. You've got uh, Newcastle's Bruno Guimaraes, which obviously is a fair player. He was number one. Uh, then second, you've got Ajax's Ryan Gravenberch, who's just about to move to Bayern Munich and probably start there. Uh, and then third, you've got Joshua Kimmich, uh, again, a player that you'd quite like to have at West Ham, you could imagine. Uh, and then uh, just a few after that, uh, Mark, Marco Verratti came in and then you're looking at the likes of uh, Loftus-Cheek and then when I broke it down into specific areas um, if you focused on attacking which was assists per 90 and his dribble completion and number of dribbles uh, Eduardo Camavinga defensively uh, so interceptions and defensive success I'm going to give you Rodri Bellingham Kante and Calvin Phillips uh, and then in terms of his key passing so again assists shot assists passing to the final third uh, Yuri Tielemann. So quite the uh, quite the class of midfielders there. Uh, so just to really hammer home quite how good Mark Noble was in that season, there you have it. Um, and I think it, what was most interesting when I was going through some of the numbers, it was really noticeable to me following our discussions about the sort of central midfielder that we need to bring in. We need to bring in 2015-16 Mark Noble, <laughs> frankly, because he is the perfect balance in that right-sided central midfield. He can pre- progress the ball, he can win the ball back, he gets a lot of interceptions and more recoveries. And he was also a surprisingly good dribbler. I think 60% dribble success rate in that season is, again, something I just would not associate with Mark Noble. Um, and thankfully, obviously, doing this search, a load of other names were thrown up. Um that were lower down the list, but a lot younger. So names that we might be able to look at in the summer, just to throw them out without going into too much de- detail. I'm looking at Shaparenko at Kiev, Vitinha at Porto, uh, Kenneth Taylor at Ajax, Loftus-Cheek creeps in there, uh, Czech de Kure from Lons, uh, Kokchu from Feyenoord, and Ashi Miru from Anderlecht. So awesome names that you should probably keep in your head. And uh, I imagine me and Jack will come back and look into a bit more detail this summer. Oh, that's... Something that I, I I haven't actually heard what you were going to say before that, and it's really lovely. That's really really good names and really good players. And also, <laughs> I think any any listener at this at this point, you have now got something in your back pocket to bring up when someone is a dickhead <laughs> about Mark Noble in the pub or on WhatsApp or on Twitter. You actually go, well, actually, you're full of shit. Um, yeah. and, I mean, and he, he's he's a difficult player to define, isn't he? Because he the thing he did do, and I mean, I is that he he adapted for whatever West Ham needed and had to become whatever West Ham needed, which didn't always help his career because he was always there and he was not going. And if he needed him to be this guy, if we were crap, he kind of got dragged down. If we were very good, he actually usually elevated with that, but he'd also put in different roles, didn't he? And he never really got to be Mark Noble. This is what he does. It was Mark Noble. He can do these things pretty nicely in about five different roles he has to play. Yeah, I think often what ended up happening is he became sort of seen as an enforcer, um, which I don't really think was was his best role or or where he performed best in a West Ham shirt. I think his his best um, abilities have always been progressing the ball and... um, He's been let down really by by his lack of pace because if he had that that extra dynamism, he could have potentially gone on to be a, a quite successful, uh, quite kind of deep sitting number ten or or advanced eight, um, suited to sort of like a four four two formation um, where you have a, a real sitter alongside you or a real ball winner alongside you. Um, I think you know what springs to mind just in exactly that way is. Um, I think um, West Brom away 2015-16 where he played alongside Kuyate in a 4-4-2 Pyatt and Lanzini on the wings and he scored twice in that game in a 3-0 win and was just by far the best player on the pitch and um that's when 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 you can see that kind of pivot with him where he's not his legs aren't necessarily required um and he can just operate as a as a really fantastic progressor of the ball and then also has quite nice timing around the edge of the box um to arrive in the right spaces uh, Norwich is another example of that where in that sort of 2-2 comeback that season where he arrived in, in the right space on, on the edge of the box. So I think often we haven't been able to see that um, as much as as perhaps would have benefited him and his career. And what we've often seen is him used as a six because his enthusiasm and his energy and his commitment has really helped us in seasons where we haven't been so good. Um but but I would agree with the general kind of uh, opinion, which is that off the ball, he 
that that's not really where his best talents lie is 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 the thing that he's always offered West Ham the most has been his um uh, consistent ability to progress the ball and also to dictate tempo um and you know sometimes that that that's been kind of passed off as um or you know I really remember fans kind of around me in the home end particularly in the sort of Pellegrini era um, era of being frustrated Noble only passes sideways or um, whatever but I, re- I remember going through the numbers of ages ago now going through the numbers having a little Excel sheet and, and having all the midfielders next to each other Snodgrass was one of them it was that sort of time and uh, Noble came out with sort of almost 8% ahead on the number of uh, the average number of forward passes um, per game so he's always been um, a real contributor on, on getting the ball forwards for us and um yeah, I do think it's a little bit of a shame that that he wasn't able to kind of move away from that image uh, of just being a, a tough tackling um, midfielder without much ability, because that's not really a fair reflection of of the player he has been. I would say one thing he's done this year. That's one thing he's generally always done. It's happy. I'm kind of happy that he's done it this year. When you've seen him, he's always been someone who moves into space for a pass on the ball in those positions. Doesn't and will never really. He's always been someone who's happy to take on the ball, even maybe when he shouldn't be. He's happy to have that responsibility. He doesn't shirk. And I've been quite happy to see that he's kind of come on this year and done that again. He might not be able to do it. I mean, he's never done it with much pace, but he might not be able to do it with much kind of vibrant energy. But he's always, always happy, always willing to take that responsibility. I think even in, in possibly slightly become a problem, actually, where he's come on, and he's kind of taken over some of the ball you could have had from others. But he's, when he's always had a, a, a kind of a subtlety of pass to him as well. Yeah. Um, Weird things. We got just a couple of stories. I mean, my one I will quickly, quickly mention. Um, years and years ago, meeting Mark Noble, and you don't often get to meet your heroes. And someone tweets out, "Who works for BT? Is anyone willing to come on TV to TV tonight and get a tattoo on their arm of Mark Noble's signature?" And I was bored in, in half term back when I was teaching, so I thought, "Well, I'll, it's a chance to meet my, a hero. I'll go do it." Um, so I drove up to London. An hour later, I think my missus kind of said, well, I'm not going with you (laughs) 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 off on my own. And um, yeah, and it was and he was he was great. He was lovely. He was conversational. Um, I mean, I most things I could remember from his debut. Oh, no, his first goal, I think, was that Tottenham game. And all I could really remember from that game are mainly Tevez memories. And I did feel a bit of a fool for that. Um, but he, he signed my arm. It's on there. You won't be able to see now. On my left arm, signed. He said, how big do you want me to do it? I said, have a go. And I expected him to kind of do a normal size. And for those, for the two of you who can see my arm, that is most of my bicep. <laughs> <laughs> that is the width. That is from my shoulder, basically, down to my elbow joint. Um, yeah, which wasn't the kind of small gap I kind of expected. But I've always kind of cherished that. Um, plus, I got to be Anthony Costa from Blue, and he was also lovely. And you know, you, <laughs> that's just a that's just a bonus Anthony Costa for you. For those who weren't expecting that, what a great guy! Um, and I was delighted by that. And I'm, I mean, I'm not surprised that he would do something like that for a fan. I just seemed to find it funny. But I'm also not surprised that if you go into your story, Jack, that he's the kind of person who would be there to do that kind of thing as well. Well, for for me, I think his interaction with my family that many of you who listen to the podcast won't be aware if you follow me on twitter you will be aware my, my i've had a really difficult familial situation over the last few years at the beginning of the pandemic both of my parents were diagnosed with terminal illnesses and i kind of moved back home to be a stay-at-home carer for them and um obviously we were we were forced into shielding we couldn't go outside i mean i was probably trapped in the flat for i, I could probably say that i only left our flat uh two to three times over a period of at least six months um so it was a obviously a a really challenging time both practically for us but also emotionally dealing with this kind of huge change in our reality and that you know we we had a i had a, a a life to go and build and then come back and kind of be um interact with my parents in that different way that you do when you're able to move away to uni or move away and uh, and set yourself up and then come home. Um, and my parents, you know, this image of their retirement and then potentially having grandchildren or whatever. And then suddenly we had what a year, two years together. Um, and one of the, one of the most amazing moments of that, probably the, my favorite memory of that is being able to connect um, with the club, um, thanks to some uh, brilliant friends of of my dad's who who got in touch with support services, who then got in touch with with Noble and and when uh, Mark heard, uh, just his response is just sort of uh, surmises his um, 
who he is as a person and why we've been so lucky really to have someone like him as, as a player and then as a captain um, in that he heard immediately went around the dressing room with the shirt, got everyone to sign it, um, picked up his phone and then just asked for the number and sent my dad a WhatsApp, uh, which is just, <laughs> you know, just not the kind of thing you'd expect really um, from, from a, Premier League football player um, and a captain of a, of a big club like West Ham. But yeah, just a, a, recorded himself sending his love to, to my mum and dad. And for me to be able to kind of sit my parents down in a, in a time that was really, really challenging and, you know, having all these nurses coming in and out and actually a nurse is coming in on the video I've recorded. You'll find it on my Twitter if you want to, if you want to if you wanna go and look for it. Uh, but sitting them down and saying, I've got a surprise for you guys. And I hadn't really been able to, to give them anything positive um, in that period because you know, I couldn't even let them see their friends. Um, and for, for it to be a video from Noble, who, you know, was my dad's hero. Um, and for the two of them to connect in that way, although obviously not a direct conversation, but for, for Noble to, to speak directly to him, say, Neil, I'm sending you my love was, um, really impactful and really, um, wonderful for my family and, and has given me a sort of lasting positive memory of a time that was really difficult that I wouldn't really have anything positive to grab onto otherwise. So I'm massively indebted to him personally. And, um, I think that's just the mark of, of the man he is. I think that's uh, difficult really to do. say anything that would be better than that at this point. So we <laughs> might as well wrap up there. Before I go, quickly, no explanations, no justifications. Favourite Mark Noble goal, Cal? Uh, the volley against Leicester. Jack? Uh, Barnsley away, 4-1, I think. Barnsley away, 4-1. Yeah, big lob kind of outside the area. Curly. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool away, 3-1, 3-0, 3-1. Uh, we won at Anfield. <laughs> into the corner when he didn't need to he could have it, it made sense to shoot in the complete control. I thought there was no justifications um, no yeah, explanation I'm the host get fucked <laughs> <laughs> also quickly it feels wrong to, to not even mention uh, him carrying Ander Herrera off the pitch at Upton Park yeah, that is a personal true. highlight for me I think we should all remember uh, picking up little Ander Herrera and throwing it <laughs> as if it was a breakaway and someone had Ander to Herrera has got far too many mentions on yeah, this yeah I podcast. know I mean I'm just referencing <laughs> kicking ball I thought we We've got Miranda Herrera fan club based in this, this West Ham podcast. Um, well, next week will be our last of the season. We'll do maybe one or two during the uh, the postseason break. Oh, I nearly said off season. I hate that word. Um, so one more fill of us for this week. Hopefully, Ander Herrera will come up again next week. But until until know. then, we don't know. Um, <laughs> we shall see next week. Adios. Right. So we're here in the offices of a late late show with the host of a late late show. James Corden. Hi. Big West Ham fan. Yes. <laughs> and big knees up Mother Brown, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm regularly on the general discussion page. There's always someone who's got some information, so I love it. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yes, it's Find excitement them. surrounded by imminent disappointment. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it mostly is. Get on the forum at kumb.com. Come on, you irons.